All right, so you can see why we love the work that the Bible Project puts out. And so you can find videos like this. We certainly recommend that you watch all of them at BibleProject.com. And the narrator said so many amazing things. And I just want to point out one thing that I really liked at the very end. The quote that he said, he said this, Biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It is a choice, a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that is as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. And that is an incredibly powerful statement that really lays the foundation for today's talk because it gives us hope, right? And so here's the main idea that we want you to leave with today, and it's this. Without hope in Jesus, everything is hopeless. And so if we're going to agree with that statement, then that means every other hope that's not in Jesus is a false hope. And that brings us to our first point that kind of hangs from that main statement. And you are going to fill in the blank on this one. So false hope is found in blank. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take 30 seconds of going before God and praying, God, help me fill in the blank. What am I putting my false hope in? So I'll time us. I'll start. I'll pray a second. And then for 30 seconds, you're going to pray, and then we'll move back in. God, help us reveal to us, no matter what it is, where we are putting our false hope. Amen. All right, amen. Okay, so what did you put in your blank? Was it your health? As long as I don't get COVID, I'll be fine. Was it your money? As long as our reserves hold out, we'll make it. Was it your pantry? As long as we don't run out of paper products, we'll be able to survive the pandemic. Right? And that all looks backward. What about looking forward? Right? As long as this person actually becomes the president, we're going to make it. Or as long as we get a vaccine, all of the world will be fine. Right? That's just a false hope. Whatever it is that you filled in that blank, it's a false hope. So, I'll ask you another question. Did you ever look at your future with great anticipation? So I'll suggest that Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, did just that, right? Think about it. Joseph is probably a teenage, either early 20s or a teenage young man. He knows he's going to get married. It's an exciting time in his life. It's an exciting time in Mary's life. I'm sure Joseph did the same thing that all of us did in our engagement period. We stared at the ceiling, excited, wondering what was going to happen in our future, right? How many of us though, here in this room have done that with our spouse? Or how many of you at home have thought those thoughts before you got married, right? That's an exciting period of time. And I'm sure Joseph lived out that time filled with joy and laughter and anticipation with Mary. It was a wonderful time. So if you can imagine that and you remember that in your own life, then you can also imagine and, and conceive of what it was like for Joseph when Mary came to him and told him what no fiancé wants to hear. I'm pregnant. And with those two words... Everything was crushed for Joseph. 
the laughter, the joy, the anticipation, the hope. And so, certainly not to critique Scripture, but Scripture makes this a little vanilla in the beginning of Matthew. And so I'll read it, starting in verse 18. It says this, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I mean, can you imagine that? As a young teenage man, can you imagine hearing that news and then reacting justly? I mean, I understand why God would choose Joseph. I also understand why God wouldn't choose me to be the father of Jesus. I would not respond justly to that. That would be on Facebook, and that would be on Twitter, and that would be on Instagram, and that would be on my Finsta account. I'd be Snapchatting that thing, like all over the place. TikTok videos, like whatever it would take to make sure that everyone knew how hurt I was and what my fiance had done to me. But not Joseph. He acted justly, graciously. Don't miss the grace of this. As I read the Levitical laws, in my mind, there would be every right for Joseph to see that Mary would be stoned to death for this. When you were betrothed in those days, that was as if you were married, but you just hadn't had sex yet. It was significant much more significant. You think about how significant our uh, time of engagement is here. It was way more significant then. And so when it says acted justly, I mean, acted graciously, didn't give her what she deserved. And there was no question that in that time, he didn't want her to be shamed. He wanted her to be cared for, but he was also crushed and broken and sad and empty and humbled. He was hopeless. His hope had been taken from him. And so I wonder today, in 2020, with this terrible year that we've had, does this Christmas story resonate a little bit more with you? Are you hopeless? Are you broken and crushed and humbled and sad? Has your hope been taken? And are you recognizing that your hope was set in something other than Jesus? And that's how it was for Joseph. That was how it was for all of Israel, in fact. So I'll talk about more, I'll talk about it more next week. But God had been silent for 400 years. This was the first moment that, that they had heard from God. And so that was a crushing moment for them. And not only that, they had 613 religious laws that were set up to, to make things better. And all they did was make things more religious. And that was one side of the pile. And then on the other side of the pile was Roman oppression. I mean, talk about a nation that was yearning and dreaming and expecting and hoping. It was the nation of Israel. And so what I really love about this story is that this moment in Scripture is the hinge point of the entire Bible. This moment. And I'll offer that it's the hinge point for all of humanity and all of creation. 
So you think about different hinge points that we might have had throughout time, right? The creation of fire or the invention of the wheel or penicillin, the computer, the internet, the industrial revolution. These are all moments in time that, that changed our trajectory. Nothing changed the trajectory of the world more than this moment. And so in this moment, we're going to sing a song that takes us in the same begging, yearning, expecting, hoping trajectory that all of Israel would have been in the same moment. And we're going to usher in Advent with our very first Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I challenge you to sing this as a prayer, taking on the weight of Israel and their hope for the Messiah to come. Go ahead and sing it.
Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That was their prayer and ours. And Jesus came. And so that brings us to our second point that hangs from our main idea. True hope is found in Jesus. So, have you ever met anyone whose life just doesn't make sense to you? Like, just, just doesn't equate, doesn't add up. So that was my situation with my wife's sister, Laura, and her husband, Dave. Because 14 years ago, Dave and Laura packed up everything that they owned, and their two-year-old daughter and their infant son, and they moved to the country of Niger in West Africa to be missionaries. And I couldn't get it to line up in my mind. You know, Niger is just a terrible place, right? So you can see on the map, it's buried beneath Libya, just above Nigeria, bordered on the north by the Sahara Desert, and it's in a geographic region called the Sahel, which is just ugly, brown, and dirty. There's just nothing attractive about it. In fact, just to give you a kind of a picture of what the color of the nation is, it's the color of the sand at the bottom of the boardwalk at the end of the summer. All right? Like, you get that? You go down the steps and you stand up on the, just this dirty sand. That's just what everything is, looks like. The buildings, the cars, the river, everything. And it's poor. And so, if you do a little research, you realize that Niger is, depending on what form you use and what research you do, it's either the poorest country or somewhere in the top five on every single list of poorest countries in the world. And so to help us all understand just what poor there means, I I brought this orange bowl. And so Linda and I had an opportunity in 2018 to go to Niger and take a look at the country and just visit with uh, Laura and Dave and their family. And it was an amazing trip. And it was, I mean, in no exaggeration, it was like walking through a National Geographic article being in this this country. And so we were in the market one day and we happened upon these bowls. And so they have them in all different colors and they're probably just recycled plastic bags. This this bowl was made in Nigeria. They they call the national bird there in Niger the plastic bag. So there's so many plastic bags, they try and figure out what to do with them. And so we got, came upon, upon these bowls. And so we bought four of these bowls, a different color for each one of our kids, and they're cheap. I mean, we paid $1.50 for four bowls total, right? And so they're, they're cheap enough that you might be tempted to use it once and throw it away, right? Cheap, cheap. And so we got home from our trip that was amazing, and we gave our kids each one of these bowls. And so my son, Max, who's a sophomore at, Rutger, uh, at Rowan University, an engineering student, asked a scholarly question. He said, Dad, how long would someone in Niger have to work for this bowl to be able to buy it? I said, man, that's a great question. So I did a little research, and I have to say that the answer was shocking. And so just to give some context for how long someone has to work, we'll just do a little economics lesson. So the per capita income for the United States is $33,000 a year per individual. And so what that means is they take the gross domestic product, and so the gross domestic product is the total amount of goods and services produced by a nation, and they divide that by the size of the population. It's just a simple formula. 
And so that arrives at $33,000 a year, or if you work a 40-hour week, that's about $16.50. So we can all, we all, I'm sure, either are here or we know people who make $16.50 an hour. That's a fine income. So that's the per capita income for the United States. The per capita income for the nation of Niger, the same thing, the gross domestic product divided by the size of the population arrives us at a per capita income per individual in the nation of Niger at $215. Okay? So if we take this bowl and we use this as an example to apply just how poor Niger is, someone making the per capita income of $33,000 a year working 40 hours a week at $16.50 needs to work about 52 seconds to be able to afford this bowl. 52 seconds. In the nation of Niger, someone working 40 hours a week at the per capita income of $215 needs to work one half day, four hours, at nine cents an hour. That's how poor Niger is. A human being needs to work a half day's labor to buy a bowl that I paid for with pocket change. That's the country that they live in. And so that's just the start of it in their lives. I mean, they moved with a two-year-old and an infant, first of all. They left their entire support network here and moved there. The weather is horrible. There are three different seasons. There's a rainy season where it rains for about a month and the river floods and it's 100 degrees. There's a dry season where it's just 100 degrees. And then there's the hot season where it's 130 degrees in the shade. And if they're fortunate enough to have air conditioning in a room in their house, because they, there's no such thing as central air, they set it at 90 degrees just to stay a little cool. They battle with malaria constantly. They have terrible health care. They're terrorists, so they need armed escorts to leave the city where they live. They have an armed guard stationed 30 feet from their house, 24 hours a day. The river has flooded so high that they've been flooded out of their house twice and they've needed to move five different times. Every time they come back to the United States on home assignment, they pack up their entire house and they put it in storage for safekeeping. When they had our niece, their youngest daughter, they drove nine hours to the neighboring country of Burkina Faso over terrible roads to have their baby because the healthcare is so bad in Niger that one in seven women die in childbirth. It's unbelievable. It's a nation of unrest. Dave, once on his way to the airport with a group of guys, drove through a mob that suddenly erupted into a riot and they broke all of their windows out of the van that they were driving in as they drove through this mob. They had a landmine explode on their street. Another time, my sister got a call from Laura, and Laura was crying because there was an attempted coup going on a mile down the road, and she could hear guns and bombs going off in the distance. Another night, because of something that happened in Paris, 
Mobs broke out, and they burned 45 Christian churches to the ground in the city that they live in. More than, I don't know if I can do this without chucking up, more than any other person or people or couple that I know, they live a hopeless existence. I mean, why would anyone live through this? It doesn't make any sense. Their life makes no sense. But if you talk to them, they live there with joy and love for the people of Niger. Because they say it's simple. Our hope is in Jesus. It's that easy. And so the same hope that they have in Jesus is the same hope that Joseph put in God that his son was the Messiah. And it's the same hope that we're called to live out as the reason for our hope. And so I love what happens in this hinge point of this passage in verse 20 when we pick it up in Matthew chapter 1. But as he, as Joseph considered these things, and I love, I just love how Scripture kind of makes that so simple as he considered these things. I'll read that as, as Joseph laid in bed night after night after night wrestling with these things and holding his head in his hands, right? Can you imagine the emotion in that word considered? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Man, I just love this passage. I just love the simple faith of Joseph and the hope that he has. God says, do this. Joseph did that. I just love the example that he set. And I love that he used the biblical definition of hope that we saw earlier, waiting for God to bring about a great future. So he takes his pregnant fiance, he marries her, he names his son Jesus, which means Savior, or God delivers, or God with us. And they live their life. The suffering didn't go away. Remember, Mary was found to be with child. In Luke, we see that, that the angel visits Mary, and then Mary goes away for three months and comes back three months pregnant. That was a discovery. That was a scandal. People could count back then just like you can count now. Six months is very different than nine months. This was scandalous. This was shameful. And Joseph, like an amazing husband, steps in between the shame and his wife and bears it all and guards her and protects her. I just love the example of Joseph in this. I also love the example of the Apostle Peter. You know, we don't have any Christmas sermons about Advent from the Apostle Peter, but if we did, I guarantee he would be talking about hope because he talked about hope a lot. And so in his first letter to all the churches that are now in modern-day Turkey, we see the, the hope that he extended to them in the book that we call First Peter. And so listen for the way that Peter centers our true hope on Jesus. He says this, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so I just want to unpack that one word, inheritance, just a little bit. The next time you come to my house, you'll walk in my front door and you'll see, kind of off to the right, a grandfather clock. And so that grandfather clock was given by my grandfather to my father. And my father gave that clock to me, and I will give that clock to one of my children. And hopefully, they'll give that clock to one of their children. It is a piece of my inheritance. Just to be really clear, I did nothing to earn that inheritance, to request that inheritance. I was simply born into it, and it was given to me. I had one thing that I had to do. I simply had to receive that inheritance. And we pick it up a little while later in the third chapter of his first letter, where he says, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Another time, Peter says to his protege, Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. He's saying, always be ready. Always have a reason for the hope that's in you. Always be prepared to share what that is. And so in my mind, it divides us into two different groups. Those of us who have already received that hope and those of us who have not yet and are waiting expectantly because they know somewhere in their souls that something is missing. So with that in mind, I just want to share one final story. So a few years ago, a group of us here, about 30 people here, went and did a tour of the Holy Land in Israel, and one of Israel's neighboring countries is Jordan. And so we went to where the last scenes of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was filmed in the ancient city of Petra. And so maybe you recognize this building and Indiana Jones running into that. That's a real, that's a real facade. Does that make sense? A real facade? But just for the record, that's only about 20 feet deep. So there's no tunnel behind it. There's no guard. There's no chasm, right? All those things from the movie. Okay, so we're there. And right before this, if you were to back up probably 20 feet, you would see these canyon walls called the Seek right next to you because you walk out of the canyon and you end up right in front of that building. And it's amazing. It's, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. It is really a remarkable place. And that, that canyon or that Seek is paved by the Romans thousands of years ago. And it's 100-foot walls as narrow as 10 feet wide. And it is stunning, just just absolutely beautiful. And so there are people there, Bedouins uh, run the entire city of Petra, which is about 100 square miles of buildings like this. And so we're walking in, and this little girl walks up to me, this little Bedouin girl, she's just beautiful, seven, eight years old. I still remember her eyes. She was just a sweet girl. She walks up to me, and she puts a bracelet on my wrist and holds my hand. And I said, oh, no, thank you. I don't, I don't want the bracelet. And she said in broken English, no, sir, it is my gift to you. And I said, I, I don't want it. No, she said, no, no, it is my gift to you. And she wouldn't let go of my hand. And so we kept walking. And I said, I don't want the bracelet. And she said, it's my gift to you. And I said, okay, 
And so I'm just walking along, holding this little girl's hand, having no idea. I'm looking around. There are no parents paying attention to her whatsoever. And we keep walking. And the further that we walk, the more I start hoping that this is actually not some kind of scam or just salesmanship. And the further we go, the more I realize this is not some kind of scam or salesmanship. Like, she's giving me this beautiful bracelet. And it must be some Bedouin custom that when they see a guy walk into the canyon, they give him a bracelet, right? I mean, this is what I'm thinking. And so we're walking along. We get to the end, and my party keeps moving on. And she stops, and I said, thank you so much for the bracelet. Goodbye. And she says, may I have $10 for the bracelet? And I said, I I don't want to buy the bracelet. And she said, okay, may I have my bracelet back, please? And she took it back. She took back the gift that she gave me. Now, there was no suffering involved in this, right? No missionaries uh, are looking at this going, you you call that suffering? No, not at all. The Apostle Peter would call this a vacation day. I'm on a holy tour of, I'm on a, I'm on a tour of the Holy Land. This is not, this is not something that, that was difficult to endure. But it reminds me of what God did. Because we didn't get, God and I didn't get to the end of my walk where he said, okay, can I have my son back? I gave you my son as a gift, but you're not willing to pay the price, so I want him back. There was no price for me to pay. Jesus paid the whole price. He is the hope of glory. And so as we wrap this up, Just this one concluding concept that I want to make sure that is anchored, that we recognize that our only hope is in Jesus. And so you remember before I said there were two different groups. There are those of us who have accepted that gift, and we have a very important job to do, and that is to do everything that we possibly can to give that gift of hope to someone else. And then the other half of the room, the group of people who have not yet received that. You think about when you have a gift offered you, there is one requirement to the person who who has that gift offered to them, and that is simply to receive it. It costs you nothing. It's been paid for. It is a gift. And that is the gift of Jesus, especially this time of year. So the team is going to sing this song, just the third verse again of that Christmas carol that we sang. And this is what it says. O come, desire of nations bind, and one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease, and be thyself our king of peace. And so as we go into this, just prayerfully again singing this, recognizing that it's very simple to receive a gift. There's a posture of our heart simply to put our hands out and receive. And so that's a challenge that I have for you. For those of you who have not yet received that gift, receive it. For those of you who have, pray for the other people here in this room, online, those who watch this somewhere in the future. Pray for those people. For those of you who are ready to receive this gift, it's easy. 
Jesus, I receive this. I receive you. I want you to be my king of peace. I'm going to fill the space in my heart that has been vacated. Then something is missing is you. So I'll just challenge you in that moment to pray that. Why don't we stand? Come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease, and be thyself our King of peace. done this before, um, we're not going to put anything in your hands. This is just a posture of what it looks like for us to receive a gift. For those of you who are at home or driving in your car or sitting on your couch, wherever you are, the same posture, and let this reflect the posture of our heart before God. Let's pray. Lord God, today, today as a congregation, Wherever we are, we are together as a church, even in this weird time of being divided between online and in this building. Lord, we all stand here with this posture of receiving the gift and recognizing and declaring that you sent your son to be the gift for us. And Lord, we receive him as your gift. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we want you to have a wonderful week and a wonderful beginning to the Advent season. We hope that you come back next week. Just a reminder, on Thursday of this week, the whole church is stopping and fasting and praying for the arrival of our next senior pastor. So please join us in that. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Bye-bye.